This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Boneyard with Steve Robertson. As always, I am your good friend and host, Steve Robertson, here on the Tuesday edition of the Yard. Wanted to record yesterday, just couldn't couldn't get it together. Just one of those days. Just you know, had a lot going on. Had to go get a vehicle out of the shop and drop a vehicle off. It's just so much going on. And, and uh, went and spent some time at the Silk Complex. Interviewed Brittany Thackeray, you know, uh, Mississippi State uh, staffer Brittany Thackeray. Played softball at Arizona. Also, she is a very much a supporter of Mississippi State softball. So went and got some information from her. That'll run later today. On jeanspage.com is a free Q&A. Be sure and check that out. But, you know, sometimes life happens. It's very rare that I have to make a programming adjustment. But uh, So I do apologize for that. But we're, we're going to do Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. We'll get back on schedule tomorrow. And we'll recap kind of the developments of day one of the SEC baseball tournament in Hoover. And we're not there. And it stinks. It absolutely stinks. Maybe I needed a day of mourning. It's tough, man. It really is. I know that many of you love Mississippi State baseball as much as I do. And when we are not doing well, we are not doing well. And so I was very disappointed. And uh, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time, you know, recapping uh, the weekend that was. We'll touch on it a little bit. We'll look at some uh, postseason type stuff. And, uh, you know, know, the bottom line is it is what it is at this point. You know, the season's over. And it stinks, man. I got so used to having June baseball. You know, it's like, hey, I hadn't taken a family vacation in years. But uh, going to take one this year. Happy to do that and spend some time with family. But, man, I would love to be back in Omaha. No doubt about it. If you've never been, let me go ahead and share with you now. I know many of you went last year for the first time, and good on you. But if you have never been to Omaha in the College World Series – You owe it to yourself and to your family to go, even if it's just for a game or two or a weekend. Watching your team, our team, run out of the dugout onto the field at Omaha is a very, very special thing. It really is. And sometimes maybe we take it for granted. You know, we've been 12 times. You know, I mentioned recently on the show, we have been to Omaha more times than Tennessee has been to the NCAA tournament. We've been to Omaha 12 times. They've made the tournament 11. It'll be their 12th time making the tournament this year. But uh, not a lot of baseball history there. But those guys obviously having a huge, you know, perhaps a historic year. So we'll see how things go. They, they have absolutely nothing to prove in the SEC tournament. If I was Tony Vitello, I would take the Chris Lamonis slash Ray Tanner approach and maybe get out of there as quickly as possible and get everybody home and get them rested and get ready for the games that really matter. There are some other teams out there like Vanderbilt and Ole Miss that are playing head-to-head. You know, the winner of that game's got to feel a little bit better about their their chances of getting in the tournament. Uh, Vanderbilt, RPI, what, five? You know, those guys are in for sure. Do they host? Yeah, we'll see. I don't think they should. I don't care what the RPI says. You finish eighth in your league, you shouldn't host a regional. So, you know, if you're Ole Miss, you got to win that game. You know, Ole Miss loses two out of three over the weekend to Texas A&M. And the Rebels have been hot. 
kind of playing out to their potential. And there's so much discussion, too, about what's going to happen in Oxford. What's going to happen in Oxford? You know, familiarity breeds contempt. And if you had told the Ole Miss baseball fans of the 1980s that, hey, you're going to go, you know, hey, you're going to have a coach come in here. It's going to stay here for two decades. You're going to regularly be in the tournament. You're going to host a lot. You're going to go to some supers. You might even make a trip to Omaha. They'd have taken that. I was like, oh, are you kidding me? Ron Polk and those guys are killing us. We'll sign off on that right now. And so sometimes I think change for the sake of change is a negative thing. And uh, I, I know that, you know, talking to uh, Parrish Offer and some other people that follow that program much more closely than we do, there's just a lack of support in many respects. I mean, the fans turn out because they love their team. But um, you know, there's a lot of people that want to see a change. And people think, well, you know, maybe they're going to get Tony Vitello. They have not, no chance of getting Tony Vitello. Tony signed a huge extension in the offseason, about to sign another one. Tennessee is committing themselves to baseball. You know, they're, oh, we're going to get Dan McDonald. I, I, Dan McDonald's told me out of his own mouth he's not going to Ole Miss. Now, that could change, I guess, you know. But he tells me that, uh, you know, he didn't want to go head-to-head with Lamonis. They're great friends, and he just didn't want the acrimony to interfere with their friendship. So, well, you know, we'll see. Probably Cliff Godwin from ECU. I think Cliff's done a great job there at East Carolina. But is that much different than what you already have? I would say no. But I think change for them is probably good for us. Uh, reality of it is, is that uh, they're still playing baseball right now. We're not. But there we go. All right, let's let's uh, let's take some time now to thank our friends at Bulldog Burger Company. I was there again last week. I enjoy going in there because I know, I know what to expect. You know, I like trying new places when I'm on the road and that kind of stuff, but I never know quite what to order. And you know, one thing I always ask my servers, okay, if you were going to sell me this place, what is the one dish I had to have? But that's the thing. When I go to Bulldog Burger Company, I know what to expect. I've been there so many times. I love the place. I loved it before they were sponsoring this show. Many of you were too. Go by and check them out today. You'll be glad you did. Three great locations to serve you. University Drive here in Star Vegas, Gloucester Street there in Tupelo, and, of course, uh, Lake Harbor Drive, Ridgewood Flowood area. Be sure and go check them out. Have the spring rolls as your appetizer. They will make you better looking. There are a few things in life that will do that for you. But this will. Trust the science. It's the best appetizer in Starkville property. There's no question about it. And I would venture to say in the other uh, markets that they're working in near the, near the top, if not at the top. If you want a great restaurant quality hamburger, which is a great delicacy that we afford ourselves in life, look no further than Bulldog Burger Company, the place where people go to meet. M E A T. Our top story Mississippi State softball. How about that? How about that? Mississippi State softball wins a super regional. They go into Tallahassee and beat the Seminoles in their own backyard in the regional final in two games. Pretty exciting stuff. So we're going to talk a little bit about what happened. But if you are looking for softball tickets for this weekend Super Regional, chances are you're going to pay handsomely for them or you are out of luck. I understand yesterday, unofficially now, that uh, we sold about 1,200 tickets the first hour that they were on sale for Bulldog Club members. And again, this is a great incentive for you to join the Bulldog Club. I've seen a lot of people out there like, hey, I've, I've been to all these games, and, and I get it. I, I get it. You know, attendance is free for softball, 
uh, during the regular season. And there's not necessarily, quote, you know, like a, a booster club, I guess you could say, of sorts. You know, there is a way you can get involved, obviously. But uh, my point being is that it's not like when you buy season tickets. You know, like you, get, you join a Bulldog club and you buy season tickets for baseball, whatever. Well, then you get priority when it's time for postseason. Well, softball just doesn't have that infrastructure yet. And so there's a lot of people like, hey, I can't get tickets. So if you are one of those people that maybe have bought tickets just in case, there are some Bulldog fans out there that uh, have been very loyal to the program that are looking for tickets. And so let's be mindful of that. Again, and so don't let your tickets go to waste. Please don't let your tickets go to waste. But uh, remarkable response from the Bulldog fan base. It'll be rocking, man. People are like, what are we going to do? I've heard some rumors that we might actually have like an overflow crowd at Duty Noble. Don't know for sure. But we're expecting a lot of people to show up to come watch a game that aren't going to have tickets. And so there's always so much room at News Park there. And, uh, man, it's so great. You know, if, if you know the News family, they've done some tremendous things for Mississippi State Athletics. And I think it's a pretty cool thing to see News Park host its first ever Super Regional. Mississippi State had never won a regional. And that's the thing, too, I go back to in many respects. You know, sometimes I don't know if we expect enough. I mean, it's one thing to get out there and complain. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, well, this is unacceptable. Well, you know, what you find unacceptable really isn't is unimportant. You're not a decision maker. Don't mean you can decide, I don't want to go to games. You can decide, I want to get on, uh, you know, I want to get on the internet and talk trash about the university and athletic department that I, I claim to love. But, uh, you know, the reality of it is, is that, um, you know, sometimes I just don't know if we expect enough. And I think that's, you know, I look in our softball program, you know, over the years, you know, I remember, and I'm, I'm not going to be talking negatively about people. I'm not. That's not, that's not who I am, not what I'm looking to do. But there were some times just like, hey, you know, like when Jay Miller was there. Well, you know what, Jay's kind of a big deal in softball. You know, he coaches Team USA, and, you know, we we never won a regional. You know, looking at the numbers here, I mean, Jay made one, two, three, four, five, six, six regionals. 2010, we went, uh, had a losing record. 2011, losing record. Made the SEC tournament, make a change. We bring in Van. Things began to change in many respects, we thought. You know, things were kind of moving in the right direction. You know, Van's first year, we have a winning record. We make a regional. 2013, winning record, make a regional. 2014, winning record, make a regional. 15, winning record, make a regional. 16, losing record, make the tournament, SEC tournament. 17, winning record, make a regional. 18, winning record, make a regional. 19, winning record, make a regional. But it's almost like you almost make it by default. Does that make sense? You know, it's like if you're a Power 5 team, and especially if you're one that plays in the SEC, it's almost like you make it by default. And so it's like, yeah, it's great. You know, we've been in these regionals, but we never won one. I go back to 2020. We talk about, you know, kind of the COVID casualties and things like that when it comes to college athletics. The 2020 Mississippi State Bulldog team was 25-3 and when they canceled the season. 25-3. and Go back to 2016, we won 26 games the entire season. Went 3-21 and 21 in the SEC that year. But we're 25-3. and three. They canceled the season. Tough. Sam Ricketts and the staff had a tough start to 2021. Got hot late. Made some noise in the SEC tournament found their way to a regional. We didn't win. 
But Tyler Bryden's a guy that's been around for 24 hours, former Diamond Dog, spent some time uh, as director of baseball ops under John Cohen, eventually went into softball, and has been there basically ever since. And I remember when they made the decision, hey, we're going to keep Ricketts. A lot of us like, hey, we need to keep T. Brad too, primary recruiter for a lot of these players. And look at what they've done together. And I remember talking to T. Brad when we hired Samantha Ricketts, and he was overjoyed. Absolutely overjoyed. And so now here we are, two full seasons into the Samantha Ricketts era, and we've done something we've never done before. How about that? How about that? Now look back at the Van Studeman years. I mean, Van's biggest year, she went 39-21. and 21. If State wins 39 games this year, we're going to the softball College World Series. Think about that for a second. We're two wins away from going to the World Series. And for those that are curious, the uh, school record for wins in a season is 44. Way back in 2000, uh, Kathy Andrus Aronson, excuse me, Kathy, 44 and 27 overall, 17 and 13 in the SEC, finished fourth in the league, made a regional and got beat. That's a school record. Since that time, Jay Miller went 41 and 22 back in 2008, and Van Studeman's uh, high mark was 39 uh, back in 14. And so you can kind of look at where we are and kind of see how things stand. And you kind of begin to realize that we are in a position now that we've never really been. And then we're going to have people show up at a softball game that's probably never been there. Absolutely never been there. But because it's Mississippi State and because our fans are so loyal to the maroon and white, like, you know what, I've never been, but my team is playing. I've never, I may have never seen my team play in person before. May have watched them on TV, but but my ladies are playing. And so I want to be there to support them. I think it's amazing. It really is. Uh, what does the park hold? About 1,100. We've already sold about 1,200 tickets. Completely sold out. It's announced by the university. It's remarkable. It really is. We've only been playing softball in 1982. I guess this is our 40th season. SEC began playing softball in 1997. But the uh, you know, reality of it is is that um, we're doing some great things. And I remember when uh, John Cohen promoted from within and hired Samantha Ricketts to be the head coach for Mississippi State softball. A lot of people are like, oh, we're being lazy. We're promoting from within. If we've got a program that maybe is underachieving, why in the world would we not want some new blood? There were a lot of people, softball circles, Kind of gave some information back to your administration. You're like, hey, you guys have got a superstar on your staff right now in Samantha Ricketts. Two full years into this thing, I think we probably would agree. We've made the right hire. Pretty awesome. So let's take a quick look back and uh, kind of what happened over the weekend. I won't... uh, I won't be too incredibly laborious with this, but uh, I do want to give these ladies their just due on the show. Plus, there's a lot of interest in this. You know, so we end the regular season. We get to, we got to go to, to the SEC tournament then in Gainesville. You know, we had just played LSU in a three-game series. We win the Sunday game, and then lo and behold, the bracket comes out. We're playing LSU again, and we beat them 7-4 in nine innings. And then for the encore... We play Tennessee in the longest game in the history of the Southeastern Conference Tournament and lose 1-0. Playing some good softball. 
In the 2-3 matchup, we get South Florida and we get shut out 4 nothing. So all of a sudden, our backs are against the wall. And let's be honest about this. That's kind of been our regional history. Is you know, we go over there and we might, might make it to a regional final with a loss out of the loser's bracket. So if we had lost, we'd be like, hey, you know what, hey, it's about what we've done in the past. It's a good thing that Coach Ricketts and her staff and her team decided, you know what, we're a little bit better than this. So we lose 4-0, then we come back and beat Howard 6-3 to eliminate them. Florida State then beats South Florida in the winner's bracket game, puts them down there with us, and then in an elimination game, State wins 6-0. And you're like, okay, well, at least we made the final. Right? And then many of you were kind of like me. It's like I'm kind of watching this from a cursory you know, standpoint. I'm, I'm like, hey, I want us to win, but I'm not really invested yet. And all of a sudden I look up and I see the score on Twitter in game one on Sunday that we're, we're beating Florida State. Look up, it's 2 nothing in the third. I'm like, wait a minute, maybe I need to turn over there and watch this. They got, you know, Kate Sandercock pitching, who was 30-1 and and absolutely dominated this year. And so I turned it on, and the next thing I know, in the sixth inning, we put the game away. How about that? We get into the sixth inning here, and and, uh, Chloe singles to the right side to open. We reach on the fielding error. We laid a bunt down. They blew it. The runner goes to third. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, hey, we got uh, got a runner in scoring position, nobody out. McKenna singles through the left side, scores the run. It's 3 nothing. And what a big insurance run that, that felt like. And the next thing you know, we weren't done. Wild pitch sends uh, both hitters up. Now it's runners at second and third and less than two outs. Think, okay, we got a chance here. Let's put another one across. We got a walk and then another walk, which walks in a run. And then – Hull gives a sack fly RBI, and McKenna tags and scores. It's 5 nothing in the bottom of six, and we're the home team. And you're thinking, you know what? State is fixing to do this thing. And lo and behold, what do we do? They go one, two, three, and a seventh. And it's like, hey, okay, let's, let's do it again in about a half hour. And even at this point, I'm thinking, you know what? Win or lose, we've acquitted ourselves really well. We really have. It's been a good year. Playing in a winner-take-all regional final. We've never been in that position. So let's go make some things happen. And I really thought, well, this would wake Florida State up. This, okay. Maybe they took us a little bit for granted, but they're going to be ready to go now. They're going to they're come out. They're going to get us. And it kind of felt that way early on, right? <laughs> right? So right out of the gate – a third baseman, Cheryl, hits a home run to center field in the first. They get a triple, and then the home run makes it 2 nothing. And I'm thinking, okay, all right, we're probably going to run out of juice. Well, we don't. We scratch one across there in the second to make it a 2-1 ball game, and then in the bottom half, they answer right back and make it 3-1. And I thought, okay, all right, well, this is probably how this thing's going to go. Shea Moreno then singles to right field. Mia takes second. St. Clair goes to third and Hull scores. Now it's a 3-2 ball game, and you feel like, well, wait a minute now. Not only are we in this ball game, we're in this inning. And then Chloe, and I, I tweeted out when, when it happened. So we might have just seen the biggest swing in Mississippi State softball history. And to date, 
we have. Chloe singles back up the middle and two runs score. Little did we know at the time that was going to be the game-winning and regional-winning swing. And now here we are. A historic moment, to say the least. I'm excited. I'm like all of you. I'm like, you know what? Hey, I've got so much buy-in at this thing now. Now, like, I'm looking ahead at this and looking at Arizona and looking at their schedule and thinking, oh, man, we, you know, we got a shot, man. And can you imagine the atmosphere it's going to be in News Park? You kidding me? But now, all of a sudden, these ladies believe. So let's take some time now to award our Prime Shrimp Player of the Weekend. First time ever for softball. How about that? How about that? Your friends at Prime Shrimp, go to primeshrimp.com. You'll be glad that you did. Uh, we, I eat it regularly now. I really do. It's, uh, it's become something that uh, I will probably continue even after my relationship with these guys end because the product is so outstanding. I've told you guys before, it's very well packaged. It's well cooled. It's well shipped. It can sit outside all day in the Mississippi heat. You've still got good shrimp. You'd be amazed. This handy little pouch they give you, it fits neatly into your freezer. You put on about a, wa- a pot of boiling water. I guess you need to put the pot of water on and let it boil first. But uh, the next thing you know, 10 minutes later, you've got restaurant-quality shrimp right on your dinner table. Outstanding. PrimeShrimp.com is a New Orleans-based shrimp company bringing you delicious shrimp. Easy, easy to cook. No, no fuss. No crazy prep or cleanup. You're going to be amazed. I'm telling you, especially those of you that maybe do the grocery shopping, you're going to get this in, you're going to make your meal, and you're going to be like, this is so simple and easy, and at the same time, so delicious. Could it have ever been this easy? The, the answer to that question is no. Nobody's doing it better than PrimeShrimp.com. Give them a check at today, PrimeShrimp.com, and use promo code BONEYARD to save some money off your order. I recommend the French Quarter Alfredo. I like them all. The Louisiana Shrimp Bowl is outstanding. Uh, Simply Seasoned is great, but I do like the French Quarter Alfredo because I can – also make like a little bed of fettuccine noodles and then pour that French Quarter Alfredo because the sauce comes with it. It's not just like flavored shrimp. The sauce is with it. And it's like I'm, I'm, I'm down on Cafe Sabiza or something there in New Orleans on Decatur Street. How about that? All right, but our prime shrimp player of the weekend is Annie Willis. Annie Willis. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing to think what has happened with this team and Annie Willis with two huge wins. I mean, you're going into the Devil's Den here against the, the number two seed nationally. It's not like we just happened to kind of you know, get an upset. It's not like Florida State lost, so we had to beat South Florida in all due respect to the Lady Bulls. They did beat us in a game, too. But State faces four elimination games, and Annie Willis comes in and just absolutely shuts things down. That's the thing I begin to think about. You need historic performances. And a lot of people have said, hey, Steve, where does this rank? And I'll be honest with you. Number one, it's the biggest win in Mississippi State softball history, easily. But this is among the top ten wins in Mississippi State Athletic Department history. He said, well, Steve, no, but you, the number two team in the country, a team that has recently won an AFL championship, you go into their place, and it's not like you've got them in a rebuilding year. They are the number two overall national seed. And we win. It's, it's, it's absolute insanity to me to think about how well this has kind of all come together, you know. Um, but, you know, like, you, you, know, you know, Aspen gets the big win in game one, and then, uh, you know, we roll it back out there. We have to bring in Annie Willis. But 
You know, we talk about postseason performances. I, I would almost have to say that Annie Willis is the well bad in our Mississippi State softball. You'd say, well, let's not get carried away, Steve. Okay, well, let's. How about we do get carried away? All right, so three regional appearances. South Florida, game one, we lose the game. But she goes four innings, five hits, allows one run. Gets a couple strikeouts. We lose the game 4 nothing, but it was the bullpen that kind of let it get away. But you're not going to beat anybody nothing to nothing, right? you got to score some runs. Well, she comes right back in the South Florida game, number two, and she goes the distance. Seven innings pitch, four hits, no runs, one walk, five Ks. Allows one extra base hit. And State wins 6 nothing, And then comes in in relief on Sunday in game two. Five innings pitch, six hits. Uh, two walks, two Ks, and she really scattered those hits. And we did have some calls go our way, uh, but they were all correct calls. You had one where the player left early. That was one. And then you had the leadoff hitter in the seventh. They called her safe originally. I did not think there would be enough evidence to overturn the decision. I thought she was out, but that might have been my heart talking. But when they did it frame by frame, it appeared to be that, uh, you know, the defense had to play here. And then, again, I, I've never coached softball, but I assume it's like baseball, right, when it comes to the rule book. You have to beat the throw to first. Because a lot of people are like, oh, Ty goes to the runner. No, 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 it doesn't. Ty doesn't go to the runner at first. You have to beat the throw at first. And I believe she didn't beat the throw. I thought the throw beat her. And it was, we're talking milliseconds. We really are. But what a huge call and by what a huge decision – by the replay officials to get this, what I believe was correct. Now, because here's the, we've been there so many times, right? Something like this happens. Okay, it's a one-run lead. There's a, a play, and then go our way, and then we give up a walk-off home run. It's like, hey, we gave it a good effort, but it disappeared at the. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Softball god and our goddesses were aligning with Mississippi State. So here we are, and we get ready to play Arizona. We'll talk about that a little bit more later in the week. But uh, again, huge moment for Mississippi State sports and uh, for Samantha Ricketts and Tyler Brad and uh, Josh, everybody involved. Just what a great job they've done. And uh, look forward to seeing all you come to town uh, this weekend. Uh, Robbie Falk will have full coverage for us over at uh, jeanspage.com. Uh, I'm excited about it. You should be as well. Pretty exciting times. I mean, that's the thing, too. When I think about, you know, our athletic department and our athletic history, Dave Murray and I have talked about this before. You know, Ole Miss didn't make – Ole Miss has been the Supers twice in softball. And a couple of years ago, that was kind of become their school. That was their school sport, right? We're, we're a softball school, right? 
But if you look at like our highs, our highs are much higher. You know, state has hosted a super regional, and like as my friend Brian CTP pointed out to uh, some old Miss troll, hosting a super is greater than playing in a super, right? Would you not agree? I mean, that's all I've heard for years. Well, you got to host, you got to host, you got to host. Well, you know, we're hosting a super. But the bigger thing is here is Mississippi State's hosting because they're the higher-seeded team. Um, And so Arizona has not had a great year. They had a great weekend. This is a very winnable series for Mississippi State. And I know many of you, maybe a 1,000 or so, a couple thousand of you, maybe you'll be there. And I think you're going to be a big part of that. And and uh, my friend Kenny Manning has uh, has attended a ton of Mississippi State softball games. He is among our most ardent supporters when it comes to softball at Mississippi State. And he's like, you know what? He said, we're going to be packing this place out. Once people get up here and they see it and realize how much fun it is and how fast-paced it all is and how athletic and talented the girls are, or the ladies, pardon me, he said, this is what Mississippi State softball needed. We've had a pretty good year. Now, all of a sudden, we're doing something historic, and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to fall in love with Mississippi State softball because of this. And Kenny's probably right. Man, you love to see it, right? You absolutely love to see it. So congratulations to the Mississippi State softball dogs. We look forward to uh, seeing you ladies find your way to Oklahoma City. I I do think State wins the series. I I really do. I think we'll find a way to get it done. And then beyond that, who knows? But uh, how cool is that, man, that we're going to be up there and have an opportunity to play for the first time in school history for a chance to go to the Softball College World Series. Absolutely amazing stuff. All right, let's jump into our top ten list today, brought to you by CloseWithBlair.com. That's C-L-O-S-E with Blair, B-L-A-I-R, CloseWithBlair.com. Blair Chandler is a mortgage professional. A lot of people work in the mortgage industry. Blair Chandler's been doing it for over 21 years. Recently found out back-to-back years in the top 1% close ratio in the country. So yeah, here's the thing. You want to stick with the winners, right? That's the big thing. You want to stick with winners. You know, like, here's the deal. I could do business with anybody, but rather than, you know, kind of fight my way through it, why not get somebody involved that kind of removes a lot of the stress and anxiety from it? Blair Chandler has seen it all, done it all, and closed it all. Many of you may be non-conforming borrowers. Maybe you've got an atypical property. Maybe you're self-employed. Maybe your tax returns are very difficult to navigate. You need to deal with a mortgage professional. That's somebody that can go over to underwriting and be your advocate and get things done. Here's the deal, too. By being a Boneyard listener, it does not matter your college of allegiance. I know I have fans from other colleges, namely one up the road, that listen to the show. We're not going to discriminate against you either. You reach out to Blair and you say, hey, I heard about you on the Boneyard. And maybe you have to whisper that. And he's going to pay for your appraisal. That's about a $500 value. Phone number 601-500-2344. Again, 601-500-2344. That's his personal cell number. That's not going to a voicemail somewhere. That's going directly to Blair's hip. So you can call or text him today. And again, mentioning him, you heard about him on the barnyard. You can pay for your appraisal. Maybe time. Maybe it's time to buy a home. Maybe it's time to refile a home. Maybe you've got a wedding coming up. Maybe you want to put a pool in. Uh, all those things that kind of go along with you know home improvement. You know Blair can help you with that. All right. So 
Our top 10 list today, we're going back a few years. So I recently watched, uh, I watch a lot of Netflix when I have a chance to watch TV. Uh, I watch a lot of Netflix. And I like to watch music documentaries. And I like to learn. I'm, I'm a music nerd. I mean, I am. I wish I was better skilled, right? At this point in my life, I don't know what's going to happen. But I wish I was better at making music and not just researching and enjoying and listening to music. And But that's the thing, too. You know, I'm not a great golfer either. We haven't played in a while, but I enjoyed playing, you know. So I I dust off the guitar every once in a while, and I'll play a little bit, and I'll find something that I like on the radio, and I'm like, I think I could, think I could play that. And I'll go figure it out, or I'll pull up a YouTube video, and somebody else will give me a tutorial, and I'll play it. it satisfies my need, and I'll put it down for a while. But, um, but I watched this documentary uh, called uh, This Is Pop, and uh, really good stuff. I mean, it touches on some, you know, some T-Pain stuff and auto-tuning. And uh, there was this one episode about festivals and about kind of the history of festivals. I enjoy going to festivals. Uh, I didn't think I would. I mean, I've been at Voodoo Fest. I've been to Rocklahoma a few times and uh, love being able to go up there. When you're in that area, when you're in Tulsa, go stay at the Hard Rock. It's the greatest. And I'll tell you this, guys, too. This is an unpaid, you know, advertisement here. The air at the Hard Rock in Tulsa is unlike anything else. I, there's just there is a smell there when I go there. It's like I just I just want to breathe it in so deeply, and, and it's un, unlike anything else where I've ever been. But I, if you're ever in that neck of the woods, go stay at the Hard Rock. That crew up there will take care of you. I've had some great memories uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, of course at prior to that Rock, Oklahoma. But um, so yeah, I, I watched this episode. And it kind of goes over, you know, the kind of the history of festivals and some good, some bad. But it got, I want to go back to the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. And whether you're a young buck or an old, you know, buck or doe, this is one of those moments in time. It was almost serendipitous. It's like there was so much incredible stuff that happened at the Monterey Pop Festival. And there were a lot of bands that are considered legendary today that were just kind of getting started out back then. There were a lot of people that went to this thing that uh, really to kind of get exposure and, and because they agreed to what was happening during the Summer of Love at Haight-Ashbury. And so a lot of people went to San Francisco, a lot of college students, once they got out, they were reading about all these things in the Rolling Stone, about, hey, this is happening out here. I want to go be a part of that. And so they went out there and they, um, they did it. And so in the middle of the Summer of Love, they had the Monterey Pop Festival in Monterey, California. And so we're going to do our top 10 today. It's not top 10 performances, even though I have watched all these things, but it's the, the, these were actual songs that were performed at the Monterey Pop Festival by bands who were there. How about that? But uh, I know a lot of you may not be familiar, and I say familiar. Maybe you're not familiar there have been maybe some clips and some highlights over the years that have maybe made it onto your social media feed or you've seen it in a documentary and you're like, hey, I've seen that. And, and a lot of that happened at the Monterey Pop Festival. All right, so let's get started. Number 10, a band that is kind of underappreciated in many respects that was really one of, I wouldn't call them a headliner, but they were one of the bands that um, you know, really got a lot of acclaim, shall we say. Uh, for the Saturday performance. They opened up on Saturday, and, and that was a packed night, too. I mean, Sunday may have been the biggest night, but uh, Saturday was big, and um, our friends in Moby Grape opened it up. 
And so Sitting by the Window is a really cool song, but because we're baseball people, I went with Omaha. Now, this is one, too, that probably needs to be remastered. It is a very high-tempo, upbeat song, Omaha. Not the same versions as Counting Crows, don't get me wrong, even though there are going to be some covers on this list today. Because many of these bands were unsigned and had not recorded their debut album, and so that's what they played is some originals and some covers. So Moby Grape, an original track, Omaha. Be sure and check that out. Okay, now here is one that I think, this may be the most interesting comment that I make about the top ten list today. Because you all are probably very familiar with one version of this song, but you don't know its origins. And you don't know that the Steve Miller Band played at the Monterey Pop Festival, and they were an unsigned band. They had not even recorded an album yet. And they went out there and did a great job and, again, played some covers. They played a great tune called the Mercury Blues. I said, but Steve, it sounds familiar. Well, it absolutely should, because Brad Cumbus has used Alan Jackson's rendition of the Mercury Blues as his walk-up song the last couple of years. And here you were thinking that was an original song. You're wrong. So it actually goes back... It was originally written by a guy named Casey Douglas, and it was called The Mercury Boogie. It became The Mercury Blues when some other blues standards and people like that in Mississippi began to cover the song because Casey Douglas is from Sharon, Mississippi. How about that? You didn't expect to have that connection today when you turned on the show. So again, Steve Miller Band, they had representation back then. They had not recorded an album, and then they dropped this great kind of tuned-down, bluesy version of the Mercury Blues. And the next thing you notice, Steve Miller Band explodes. Incredible. Number eight, and listen, I don't want to be disrespectful here because I know that uh, I, I, I thought Michelle Phillips, and I guess Michelle's still around, but uh, Michelle, beautiful singer, uh, beautiful woman, of course, Mama Cass, all that was very negative. Uh, but California Dreaming from the Mamas and Papas is number eight. And the Mamas and the Papas were one of the headliners. You know, they were one of the big uh, acts on uh, Sunday night. They closed out the Monterey Pop Festival. They were the final band to perform and um, had, I guess, uh, an eight-song set. And the final song of the Monterey Pop Festival was Dancing in the Street. And it was the Mamas and the Papas with Scott McKenzie. But uh, we're going to go California Dreaming on such a winter's day. All right, number seven. This is a band, too, that I don't know that gets enough credit. They were very much part of the psychedelic movement. They were also a band. They were one of the headliners. Like, people came to Monterey to hear the birds play, and they were one of the, the big acts on, on uh, Saturday night, too. But the birds were kind of like getting them there was so big. You know, and here's the thing about the birds, too. You know, David Crosby, of course, was in the birds that ultimately became with, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. But, uh, you know, the, probably the thing about the birds is uh, Roger McGuinn, I guess he became Jim McGuinn later, but uh, he played the Rickenbacker guitar, which eventually kind of became one of those things, too, in alternative rock, like when everybody had to play a Rickenbacker to kind of show that you were part of this counterculture. But that was all started by McGuinn that he was the guy, and people wanted to replicate that tone. And so we're going to go with, uh, so you want to be a rock and roll star. That's not the same as the Oasis song. 
the birds, of course, had the big hit with Turn, Turn, which is biblically based, but they also had some songs that were banned in the USA because they were they promoted recreational drug use. But the birds were a huge part of the counterculture in America at the time, and I don't know that they get enough credit. But the song, you see, You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, was kind of a tongue-in-cheek shot at the band The Monkees. You know, The Monkees, of course, were... Uh, you know, huge kind of. They were the boy bands of their day. Had a little TV show and stuff. And bands like the Birds uh, probably had a little more credibility because there was a little more of an authenticity with them. All right, number six, another un- unsigned band that went out there and absolutely ripped it apart. And it's Big Brother and the Holding Company. He says, Steve, who's that? What's well, Janis Joplin's band? Janis Joplin fronted Big Brother and the Holding Company, and they went to Monterey Pop as an unsigned band. And again, playing some originals, mostly covers. Janice and them covered Big Mama Thornton's Ball and Chain. And if you've never seen that live, this you should. That was, the, that was a life-changing moment for Janice Joplin. Being to Monterey Pop and then pulling it off like that, and you begin to see that there was just so much grit with her as a performer. They got signed shortly thereafter. It kind of had a little bit of a bidding war between the record companies and uh, Big Mama Thornton actually recorded the song, and it was never released as, as a single. And Janis Joplin, kind of a chance meeting, went to some blues club to have a drink, and she hears Ball and Chain, gets to know Big Mama Thornton, gets her permission to sing the song live because the record company had never released it as a single. And so Big Brother and Holding Company kind of made it their own thing, but it was a Big Mama Thornton song. And to her credit, when the record company began to kind of make issue with this, it was Big Mama Thornton that said, yes, I had given her permission to do it. How how cool is that? All right, number five. I don't know that we've had Otis Redding on the the show before, and we should have. I mean, an absolute giant. And uh, what's interesting, too, so... Otis Redding was supported by Booker T and the MGs. You know them from Green Onions. We've actually had them on the, on the show before. But Booker T and the MGs was the backing band for Otis Redding. And, uh, you know, a five-song set. But we're going to go with Respect. A lot of people misconstrue that and think that was a, an Aretha Franklin original. Now, Aretha Franklin's version of Respect is obviously the, the superior version. It is. The bigger hit. It's more well it's more widely acclaimed, but it was Otis Redding himself, the Doc of the Bay, Otis Redding, that wrote and recorded that song originally. So we're going to go with Otis. We're going to give Otis a tip of the cap here. Otis Redding, one of uh, Georgia's finest exports for respect. And his version's a little different. Number four, The Who. Uh, I'm not a big Who fan. I know many of you are. I, you know, Dave Murray loves the who. I just, I don't, I just never, Roger Daltrey's voice has always kind of gotten on my nerves. There are a few songs that I like. Um, but the who, I don't know if you guys knew this. You know, the who and Jimi Hendrix didn't really get along. Yeah, Jimmy, American, you know, the who over there. You know, Jimmy broke really first over in Europe. I mean, he had some, some success here, but uh, had some real success across the pond there and a lot of people were showing up to see Jimmy and so Jimmy and the who had this rivalry about who could upstage who and so 
they didn't want to follow each other. And Jimi Hendrix lost the coin flip. And so The Who goes out there, has an incredible set. They just tear the place apart. Pete Townsend destroys his guitar. Keith Moon overturns the, uh, the drum set. You have seen this video before. You may not realize it, but you have. You have seen this video uh, before. And so my generation was very indicative at the time. To me, it is the best Who song. I know I'll get some messages about that, but that's the truth. My generation from The Who. Talking about my generation is perfect. It was it was a great protest song for the time, especially out there in California with You're in a Summer of Love. All right, number three, this is one of those songs you've heard a million times and you didn't know who sang it. And it is one of the greatest songs of the hippie generation. There's no doubt about it. It's a band called Buffalo Springfield. The song is for what it's worth. And it's like when you begin to listen to the opening bars of it, you begin to realize, too, this is very, very apropos when you consider that a lot of these young people were basically on the verge of revolution. They wanted their voice to be heard. And it was like when people say, well, it's mostly a peaceful protest. That It was true back then because it was all about love and being together. It wasn't about destruction of public and private property. So for what it's worth, you know that opening guitar You've heard it a million times, and you probably thought somebody else more famous sang it, but no, it's Buffalo Springfield, and that's another underappreciated band for their era. For what it's worth is really, in many respects, a song that defined that decade. Number two, a band that was really beginning their ascent. They'd had a couple of hit songs on the radio, and it was such a huge coup for the organizers of the Monterey Pop Festival to get Jefferson Airplane there. These guys were all on the radio everywhere. And so, like, a lot of, again, a lot of these bands were unsigned. Steve Miller Band, Janis Joplin, some of these bands, they, they just weren't really established yet. I mean, look back at hindsight and say, hey, these guys play there. They were nobodies. They hadn't even recorded an album yet. They hadn't signed a record deal in some respects. And then you have Jefferson Airplane, who was uh, on the charts. And so they got him in. Of course, Grace Slick is a phenomenal vocalist and such a strong woman and uh, really portrayed herself in that respect you know you go back and watch those live performances from monterey pop and it's like grace was running the show but we're going with somebody to love i know a lot of people like white rabbit that, that may have been the highlight for some people because white rabbit was the newer song on radio but somebody to love to me uh, and that's again not the queen version it's the jefferson airplane version all right but number one the guy that lost the uh, coin toss jimmy hendrix Anytime that we can go with Jimi Hendrix, we probably should put him number one anyway, right? But you have seen the video of Jimmy setting his guitar on fire. He had the little, you know, bottle of lighter fluid or whatever. So he goes on after the Who has destroyed their set. And Jimmy goes out there and just absolutely lays down this blistering set and then sets his guitar on fire. And it's an iconic moment in American music history. And in many respects, the one, probably the biggest moment from Monterey Pop that people remember. Again, it's still played to this day. And you know, Jimmy was so flamboyant, everything he did. Jimi Hendrix was a musical genius. And Jimmy was so good, he took a right-handed Fender Strat, strung it upside down, played it left-handed. Yeah, because that's who he was. But you have seen that so many times, and you probably didn't know where it was from. Well, there you go. And so we're going to go with Foxy Lady in honor of uh, Garth Algar from uh, Wayne's World. Um, but now, Foxy Lady is one of those incredible songs, too. And it's like, to me, it's like the raw tone of the guitar on this one. 
it's just so undeniably Jimi Hendrix. So, again, maybe I'm a hater of The Who, but I just thought, hey, Jimmy had to go follow them after they have worked the crowd up into a frenzy. And what does he do? He delivers one of the most iconic moments of that festival and in American music history. So there you go. There you go. And again, some ties to Mississippi and some of this stuff, too. How about that? So that's your top 10 list for today. If you have an idea for the top 10 list, reach out and let me know. I enjoy doing this one, you know, because like I'm always thinking, hey, I should do a top 10 on this. And this is one I thought about. You know what? There are so many iconic albums and that came kind of as a, maybe can trace some lineage back to Monterey Pop. And so let's keep talking about it. Let's not forget about the fact that you had all these incredible bands come together and pull off an amazing show over three days and really set the standard. You know, it wasn't too long after that, of course, they had Woodstock. But the Monterey Pop Festival was kind of, you know, kind of, I guess, the precursor for every bit of that. So, again, if you've got ideas, reach out, let us know. You can find Roy at Dogmatic, D-A-W-G-M-A-T-I-C-6-7, Dogmatic67, on Twitter and on Spotify. And um, just enjoy the list, man. Enjoy them. And then reach out with your ideas, and we'll try to work them in. This is one of mine today, so I had to kind of bump some things down. And I had somebody else hit me up over the weekend about a classic rock band that was kind of, I guess in some respects you can say, is kind of the the stepson of the Monterey Pop Festival. So we're going to do that on Wednesday. It's a band that uh, you know kind of draws lineage to psychedelia. So we'll get into that on tomorrow's show. How about that? And many of you have asked for it, and I have put it off and put it off and put it off. And my friend Scott from Baton Rouge said, hey, dude, it's time. Okay, so we're going to do it on tomorrow's show. And we'll, have, uh, we'll come back and have something completely different on Friday. So, again, thanks to our friends at uh, closewithblair.com. All right, next segment of the show brought to you by your friends at Campus Bookmark. The lovely, talented Susie, Miss Kathy Brown, the whole crew there will treat you like family because in their minds you are family. It's as simple as that. It's nice to be able to go somewhere where you're welcome. You know, a lot of retail establishments out there kind of act like they're doing you a favor by being there. That's not the case with Campus Bookmark. Amazing service, amazing selection. All the latest merchandise you can find for Maroon and White. It's time to start gearing up for football season now. Begin to do your online shopping at campusbookmart.net. And by being a loyal Boneyard listener, we'll give you a phrase that pays. That is BSR. You know what it stands for. Beautiful Steve Robertson. And that gets you free shipping on all orders over $50. Any order less than $50, absolutely incomplete. Go by and check them out today. And again, if you can't come to town, you can support a great historical business online at campusbookmart.net. All right, let's take a look back at some baseball stuff. It's almost like a postmortem, and I hate to add this attitude, but it's so disappointing. It really is. It's really disappointing. You know, I begin to think about, you know, how we felt after that big series in Oxford, right? We all felt like, hey, here we are. We're kind of moving forward, and uh, that's a series we always want to win. We have dominated the rivalry the last several years, and we said, you know what, hey, we had that bad weekend against LSU, but then we bounced back and take two out of three from Auburn. And then we went two out of three against Ole Miss. We're thinking, okay, well, here's we go. We're getting it done. You know, the big home run from Brad Compass, and you feel like, you know what, maybe we're a team uh, 
that's turned it around. At the time, we were 24 and 17 and 8 and 10 in the SEC. They were 22 and 17 and 6 and 22. 6 and 12, excuse me. And there was a lot of concern that, hey, Ole Miss may miss Hoover. And then we're the ones that miss Hoover, the defending NAFL champions. So we lose to them in Pearl. And our tenuous grasp on the postseason really began to get um, slippery, shall we say, at Missouri. You know, we, we absolutely destroy them in a Friday game. We're thinking, okay, we're going to win this series. We should have. We don't. We get obliterated that Saturday, and then we lose in the ninth, 7-6. And the Missouri, that Sunday game, we should have put that thing away. We didn't. And people say, well, you know, pitching. No, that was not a pitching day. That was a failure of the offense. Florida comes to town. They're starting to play well. They win all three games. And it never really felt like – it felt like we were chasing the entire weekend. So then the Bulldog losing streak then goes to five games. We go to Samford. We lose at Samford, two grand slams. Just dug ourselves a big hole, couldn't get out of it. A&M comes to town playing arguably their best baseball of the year. We still had a chance to win this series. We don't. We get swept again. The losing streak continues. It finally snaps when we 10-run rule North Alabama 14-4. to and then we're swept by Tennessee. And so you look at these weekends, you know, you begin to think about the LSU sweep. You know, we were swept four SEC weekends. Four. That just doesn't happen around here. And listen, I expected to lose a series to Tennessee. I thought hopefully we'd get a game, even as bad as it was. But we have a, you know, historic loss on Thursday. Biggest loss in school history. Not great. Not great. A lot of people are talking about, you know, there's the uh, the roster upheaval. And uh, I wanted to kind of touch on that today to kind of provide a little bit of context. Because, yes, there's going to be a lot of new names next year. There's going to be a lot of, you know, players that kind of move on. But, um, you know, let's look here. You know, our we look at our eligibility stuff. Like Drew Talley, senior. Jess Davis, senior. R.J. Yeager, senior. Tanner Leggett, a senior. So you know those guys are kind of are going to go move on, and then you've got some other guys that were that have a year of eligibility left that went through senior day festivities. They've earned their degree. Andrew Walling being one of them. He's now in a transfer portal. Uh, Von Siebert, another. Luke Hancock, Brad Cumbus, Braylon Skinner, Parker Stinnett, uh, Brandon Smith. And so when you begin to think about every bit of that. You know, when you look at how many guys we had, let's count them up here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven seniors on this team. Now, a couple of those guys have a year of eligibility remaining should they elect to use it. Like Brett Cumbus has some leverage that will help him in a draft. But Brad's going to sign. And I suspect you're going to see Luke Hancock sign too. I think Luke, Luke's already 23 years of age. I don't know that you know, it would help us if he came back for another year. But um, – you know, I, I don't think his situation is, is one that is settled. But, um, you know, among those guys, he might be the one that comes back. You know, Brendan Smith has a year of eligibility left as Braylon Skinner, Parker Stinnett. But a ton of seniors. And then you get a little bit deeper into this. You know, uh, again, Von Siebert is a junior in, on the field and in the classroom. Preston Johnson has some leverage too. But, you know, age is a bit of a concern. Does Preston come back next year? We'd like for him to come back. We know what we've gotten with him. Maybe he goes back into the bullpen. But, uh, you know, Preston was outstanding against Tennessee and deserved to win the game. 
Landon Sims will be a first-rounder. Uh, not exactly sure what happens with Drew McGowan. Stone Simmons will be back next year. Stone actually has two years remaining. Isn't that crazy to think about? But don't look for Stone to be ready to pitch on opening day. Stone's a guy that had very, very extensive Tommy John surgery. Probably not going to be right until around SEC play. And even then, you're going to be careful with him. But, uh, you know, Stone's a guy that we, you know, we, that we like an awful lot. But uh, may take a little time for him to get back. Logan Tanner will be one of the first catchers selected in the draft from the college ranks. Uh, Matt Quarter still has, uh, you know, a year of eligibility remaining. Not exactly sure what's going to happen with him. You know, he hit the first home run this season for us. Expected him to be a bigger part of the offense. Just never really came together. Cameron James, of course. I, I think Cameron's going to go. I think Cameron's going to go pro. I think Cameron Cameron's 22. Cameron's a guy that's got a couple of years of eligibility left, so he doesn't have to go for peanuts. And I understand he's got a number in mind, and if they get close to the number, he's going to go. Uh, KC Hunt, similar situation. I just think, you know, KC missing too much time this year. KC probably needs another year. So I would expect KC to be back. Callum Clark, I have spoken to some very closely affiliated with Callum Clark. Barring something completely crazy, he'll be back next year. He'll, he'll be back and needs to be. And uh, we need him to be, too. And Callum Clark is living his dream for Mississippi State. That's no way to suggest some other guys aren't. But Callum Clark is a bulldog through and through. Uh, Brooks Auger, of course, we expect to get him back. Just not exactly sure where he is recovery-wise, but we do expect him back. He has two years of eligibility remaining. Mikey Tepper has entered the transfer portal. He also has two years of eligibility remaining. And, you know, people are really high on him when we signed him because of the velo. But he just hasn't been able to kind of – it hadn't all come together for him. Maybe a change of uh, scenery will be good for him, but he is not expected to be a part of our program going forward. Lane Forsyth won the shortstop job. He is an elite defender. Uh, offensive piece kind of began to come around a little bit this year, and that's the thing, too. I think Lane Forsyth's best baseball is ahead of him. Davis Mash, an infielder from Lake Charles, and, and he's a guy, too, that's played a little bit. He's been a great locker room guy. Just hasn't seen a lot of the field. Jackson Fristo, I'm told by people close to Jackson that he has absolutely no interest in leaving. Uh, you know, we'll see how things progress. You know, they had not had these end-of-the-year meetings, and so I guess, you know, we'll, we'll see. But uh, Jackson wants to come back and really compete. And so, you know, my hope is is that uh, Jackson uh, can kind of turn the corner and, and maybe take a big jump next year. Kate Smith, you know, he's going to be back. And uh, as he was pulling away Sunday, Kate and I had a little bit of a conversation, and he assured me. Mississippi State baseball will be back next year. Cole Cheatham, freshman left-hander, and uh, got high hopes for him. I think that he will be a real factor, whether it be as a bullpen guy or whatever, but I um, think that he is a guy that can really contribute. Uh, Taylor Montiel has already entered the transfer portal. Wish him the absolute best. That's the thing you got to think about, too, with some of the issues we had this year. Um, you needed pitching, and uh, he, you know, he redshirted and didn't really get the opportunity. Uh, Bradley Wilson – freshman out of West Lawrence High School in Irwinton, Georgia. He also was in a transfer portal. Another big guy, 6'3", 230. Uh, Jack Walker from Lake Charles, Louisiana. Jack has been very up and down this year. Not exactly sure what his future holds, to be quite honest. We'll see. Uh, Slate Alford, he'll be back. He's a freshman out of Bob Jones High School. Probably your starting third baseman on opening day next year. Hunter Hines, not draft eligible for two more years. And uh, it's interesting, too. Like, there's always people that – and I guess in some situations they knew do know more than us, but uh, put out that hey Hunter Hines is going to transfer. That was news to some people very close to him. 
uh, because they have no indication that he's going to transfer it. I don't, I don't expect Hunter to play much summer league baseball. I think he comes back and gets healthy. Had a bit of a, had a, bit of a hand injury. We didn't talk about that throughout the season. Kind of respect that situation. But he had a bit of a, a, of a hand injury, especially on the swing and miss. So he's got to get better and get healthy. But uh, Hunter Hines should be a big part. Uh, named uh, second team All-SEC, and I expect him, most publications, to name him as a freshman All-American. A catcher, Gray Bain, from Lewisburg High School. His dad played at State. Uh, Gray also going to the transfer portal, which is kind of interesting to me because I had some people tell me early on they felt like that Gray was a guy that could possibly compete for some playing time next year, but he's moving on. Uh, Trey Higgins, a guy that had some real potential, really surprised to see him leave uh, and really disappointed. He did redshirted this year. I uh, didn't get a chance to play much, and there was all this log jam at center field anyway, but uh, Trey Higgins now in the portal. Aaron Downs, a guy that we expect big things from out of uh, Pella, Iowa. He was a little bit banged up at various points in the year, but this is a guy that can really swing the bat and hits the ball hard. I uh, expect him to probably be the uh, starting left fielder next year. Uh, Bryce Chance out of MRA, outfielder. If a memory serves me correct, he's going to play for Ron Polk this summer. And that's a guy, too, that a lot of people feel like has some real potential. And then Pico Kahn, uh, 6'4", 200 pounds, uh, showed some real promise this year and uh, will likely come back and be a factor on the weekends next year. And so you start doing the, the math here. You know, it's like, hey, you know, we're going to have a, a big upheaval on the roster. Well, we need to. We need to. And and it's not necessarily because, uh, you know, people have done anything wrong, but, you know, this is this is Mississippi State. And, you know, I point out sometimes, too, I think some people forget there are a lot of freshmen that don't even make it out of the first semester. He said, but Steve, no, but you. It's true. You know, Jackson Kahn was a guy a lot of people were really high on at Jackson Academy. He ended up going to Northeast Mississippi Community College after, you know, the fall of Mississippi State. Jeffrey Entz from Jackson Prep, a lot of people were really high on him. Same situation after the fall. He left, went to junior college. And, you know, sometimes these guys are, hey, you need to get on the field somewhere and get some reps. And some of those guys are thinking, you know what, I only got a short time in life to play, and I'm not going to play here. I got to move on. But that's not unique to Mississippi State. You look around the SEC, there's a lot of these guys that uh, sign, come in, and realize perhaps they've kind of got their arms around something they can't really control. And so they move on to go somewhere else they can play. And uh, that's the end of the day. That's the biggest part of it. You got to get on the field somewhere. And if it's not going to be here – it needs to be somewhere else. And the, the pressure to win at Mississippi State and at places like Arkansas and Ole Miss and LSU, you know, the days of developmental baseball are kind of over. You know, guys do get better from year to year, but if you don't show some promise right out of the gate, chances of you hanging around at a blue blood program like Mississippi State is just not very good. And it's not anybody's fault. It doesn't mean that the guy's not capable of being a good player. I mean, like you look at what Southern Miss has done, okay? Southern Miss can afford to be patient. The expectations are different down there. And listen, USM's had a great season, and no way am I being critical of them. They can afford to be a little more patient. If they don't make Omaha, it's not a big deal. If they don't make a Super Regional, it's not a big deal. And I see these projections out here that they're expected to host LSU in their regional. That would not be a good thing for Southern Miss. But, um, you know, my point being is that when you come to a place like Mississippi State, you're going to see competition like you've never seen before every single day. And some guys just decide, you know what, I can go somewhere else and not play with all this anxiety. I I can play without all of this stress 
of knowing that I'm constantly looking over my shoulder. And then the guys that do win those jobs and hold on to those jobs, those guys are really special players. That's truly the situation. You know, so we'll see what goes on from from here. You know, and I, again, I hear that Mississippi State is already working the transfer portal pretty hard. And there will be some guys, obviously, after these conference tournaments end up that go into the portal when their team doesn't make uh, the, the show. But I don't expect to hear a bunch of transfers announced right away because with a July draft coming up, you know, what if you go out and commit a guy out of the portal and then the draft comes and he gets drafted and he signs on you? Well, you got to make sure there's some assurances between you and everybody involved with the kid before you go make that. And, and I, I think Chris Lamona said it best. It's like it's unlike really any other sport because you've got to see what happens with your existing roster with the draft. Then you've got to see what happens with your signees with the draft. Then you've got to see what happens with your potential transfer portal guys with the draft. And so it's very layered. It's very complicated. But you can expect this roster uh, to really have a big turnover next year. And, and here's the thing, too. It's a little higher this year because you have so many, you know, COVID seniors. I mean, in most years, Jess Davis, R.J. Yeager, uh, Drew Talley, and Tanner Leggett are no longer playing college baseball. And those are four guys. You know, a senior in college baseball is not always a great thing. You know, R.J. Yeager, of course, uh, recently named first-team All-SEC as well he should have been. But he had the benefit of the COVID year, and he was like, hey, I spent my four years at Mercer. I've got another year to work with. Let me go see if I can't go play and have a chance to get in the tournament somewhere. So we're having this adjustment kind of post-COVID scholarship relief. And we thought that they would kind of pare it down a little bit and not let these guys count against your roster numbers. They do. And if you have really kind of marginal or non-contributing seniors with another year of eligibility left you know why would you bring them back i mean that, that spot's better spent on somebody else you can say well the kid's paid his dues well i get it but there's a reason they're not playing and so they need to go somewhere that they can't they have some eligibility left maybe they should pursue you know what let me go in a transfer portal and see if i can't be an everyday starter somewhere or have a chance to play more regularly and so you wish everybody involved the best but Chris Lamonis and his staff are charged with doing what's best for Mississippi State. And that's not always a tidy undertaking, right? I mean, there's always some situations where you have, uh, you know, players that maybe a year or two down the road could be good players and contributors for you, but you, know, you can't afford, if you're Chris Lamonis, you can't you know, begin to set this standard of, okay, well, you know, we got to the end of the tournament and we didn't even make Hoover. We got to the end of the regular season and we weren't even a factor. We have grown accustomed to playing postseason baseball here at Mississippi State. And Chris Simonis, I still believe, is a generational coach. And he says, you know, we're going to build it back very quickly. And I, I have absolutely no doubt about that. And so there are some out there that would suggest that the sky is still falling. Okay, the season's over. Oh, look, all these guys are leaving. Well, we can't spend – the entire second half of the season saying we need to upgrade our roster and then lament these guys leaving. You can't have it both ways. You can't say we got to get more talented players and then be upset that we're opening up spots to bring in more talented players. You know, listen, we wish the best for all these young men and their families. But our loyalty is to the M over S. Our loyalty is to Mississippi State. So – 
are we willing to sacrifice another season just so some kids that we like or kids that, uh, you know, took a picture with our kid? Oh, I really wanted him to stay. Listen, I really want him to win. Period. It's not that I wish any harm on anybody, but I want Mississippi State to win and to win big. And if that means we got to go out and get a handful of one-year mercenaries to kind of be a stopgap guy to kind of get us back where we need to be, then so be it. This is not the Boy Scouts, and this is not just a Southeastern Conference. This is the National Blue Blood Conversation. And we've had a few misses in recruiting. We've had some guys that haven't developed. We have some guys that have had some injuries. No matter every bit of that, you guys and me expect Chris Simonis to get this thing corrected immediately and then go to work next year getting us back in a situation we can host regionals and give us an opportunity to get back to Omaha, Nebraska. We're not willing to wait around for a couple of years and say, hey, you know, we won an Apple championship. It's okay if we have a little bit of a short run. No, no, no. No. This, the expectations with this job are much different than they would be somewhere else. There are a lot of people out there to talk about getting to Omaha. That's our goal. They don't do it, but that's our goal. Oh, we're going to find a way to get to Omaha. At Mississippi State, the goal is we want to go play for an AFL championship. We want to go win an AFL championship again. And so in order to do that, you're going to have some up and down with your roster. You just can't be as patient with guys maybe as you could be years ago. You know, you're not building and building and building and get to the end of a talent cycle and it's like, okay, well, right, well then next year they're going to be okay with us losing. We're not. So, you know, you can't criticize the chef when you tell him what groceries to buy. You, know, you got to let him do what he wants to do. And uh, I read a lot of things out here, too. I read a lot. I don't always respond, but I read a lot of these people. Oh, and it doesn't matter how many times you correct them. And one of the reasons that I do try to correct some of these things is because if, if we don't speak out, then that's the only voice that gets heard. You know, you know, I read these things about comparing him to Gene Chizik. Gene Chizik was a losing coach every step of his journey until he gets to Auburn and they get Cam Newton through unscrupulous methods. And then Cam Newton delivered an AFL championship. That it really had nothing to do with Gene Chizik. You or I could coach that team. Hey, Cam, go win. And he does. It's unfair to Chris Lamontis. This is a guy that's never had a losing season until this year as a player or a coach or even as an assistant coach. You know, and I don't know why we have to tear our accomplishments down. Why can't we just celebrate it for what it is? We won an AFL championship, period. And then some would say, well, it's about time. Oh, well, okay, we've, we've still won. And so I'm a firm believer in Chris Lamontis. I'm a firm believer in this staff. If anybody in the history of our athletics department has ever deserved a mulligan year, it's Chris Lamonis. Guy won an AFL championship. And then it's like, well, it's not – got to show everybody how angry I am or how disappointed I am. You know, No, you don't. You don't. You can go cheer for the softball team and get ready for football. You don't have to get out here on Twitter and show everybody how big of an idiot you are. Well, I'm going to go tweet at the Hell State Baseball account, and I'm going to tell them how the cow eats the cabbage. You know, that's usually like a student reading that. It's not like it's going to Kurt Simonis. It's not like it's going to John Cohen. It's silliness. And we're a better fan base than that. We are. It's one of those things, you know, get around your friends, and that's what happens. We want to top each other's cake. You know, it's like, 
man, it's been rough. And yeah, man, I hear it's going to be even worse, worse, rougher next year. You know, we ain't going to have that. It doesn't matter. It absolutely doesn't matter what you think. You don't even know what the roster is going to look like. No, we don't have this. We don't have. It's like it's like we're not going to have any new players come in. It's not like we didn't sign a great class. You know, we got some guys right now. You know, <clears throat> I've got some scouts that have shared with us privately. That think Bradley Lofton is a guy that could pitch on a weekend next year at Mississippi State. They think he's that good. They think he, in many respects, may be the key to our recruiting class. That's a guy too that's going to probably going to have to turn down some money to come to school. You know, Ross Highfield's a guy too. You know, this is a guy too that if he let it be known that he really wanted to sign, that guy's going to command you know, pretty big money. But if he doesn't get first round money, he's coming to school. At least that's what I'm told by somebody who would know. And so I share that with you. It's like we are Mississippi State. We always recruit great players. We always recruit at a high level. People, believe it or not, people want to come play here. And part of that reason is because of you. They want you to cheer for them because they know you're going to turn out there and you're going to get sun-drenched and you're going to sit out there in the berms or out there in the lounge and you're going to, you're going to cheer for the Bulldogs. And not even if you know their names. Just the bottom line is they're wearing the M over S cap. People want to be involved in that. People want to be associated with Mississippi State. So we are going to recruit at a high level. We always have. Now, we've got to have a little bit of you know, calibration this year to ensure that we get back to where we want to be next year. And I look forward to talking about that with you guys this summer as these names begin to emerge. It's very important stuff. All right, final segment of the show brought to you by our friends at Portico. Speaking of gamers, speaking of gamers, how about uh, Brooks Bryan? That's a guy that understands what it takes to get to Omaha. And I, I'll be honest with you guys, too. Like, when, um, when Brooks and I have conversations about stuff, I listen to him. Now, he'll ask me for information sometimes, too. But a lot of times I listen to him because he knows what it takes. He knows the expectations. He knows the fans. He understands the demands of being a Mississippi State football player and baseball player. Excuse me. I guess Brooks might have played football. I guess he probably could have. He's a, he's a little thicker than most of the outfielders out there. Uh, my point being is that Brooks is a guy that's committed to Mississippi State. He's committed to greater Starkville area, part of a great group of developers that are bringing this wonderful residential development to Starkville. Portico. If I was moving to Starkville now, I would move to Portico. And that's as simple as I can put it. I live out in the sticks. I like it out here. It's quiet. But it's a little ways from town. It's a lot to keep up. And sometimes I think, you know what, hey, be nicer to be close to town. Be 1.1 miles away from the Mississippi State campus. That makes it easy to get there. Maybe that's what you've considered. One day I'd like to have a place in Starkville. Maybe now is the time. This is a group two. Your phase one's completely sold out. We've already got some phase two. There's 10 homes in phase two already under construction. Two of them are sold. So there's some that are kind of trending towards that, and there's still some lots available for you to perhaps have some say in building a custom home. How about that? Maybe everybody deserves to do that at least once or twice in their life, right? Very, very simple process, right? Wrong? No, it's convoluted. But it's nice to have some people around, some people involved that are Mississippi State people that also have a place 
It's not some fly-by-night operation that they're going to come in and build this house and take off. Many of the people as part of this great developmental group live in Starkville or have a place in Portico. Yeah, they're going to be your neighbors. So it's important to them, too, that you have a good experience. Uh, Give Brooks a call today, 601-416-8075. Again, that's 601-416-8075. Give you all the information you need. And if you're looking to buy a home in Starkville and your real estate agent hadn't mentioned Portico, you need to mention to them. And maybe ask them why not. Because Portico is the hottest thing going right now. So let's make sure we get you a great place. You can start with a two-bedroom, two-bath home, all the way up to a four-bedroom, four-bath home. You'll be glad you did. Make Portico your next move. All right, let's, uh, as we record this, the SEC tournament is being played. So let's take a quick look at the bracket and um, maybe talk a little bit about this. Uh, you know, by the time any of you guys listen to this, you know, games are going to be uh, final. Alabama is actually beating Georgia pretty handily right now. So we'll see how that game progresses. That'd be big for Alabama. You know, Alabama projected as a team coming in. Georgia was a team early on that we thought, you know, would be a host and that is really kind of faded down the stretch, kind of like last year with Scott Strickland. It's like they, they didn't close the season well last year. They went from being a host school to being out of the tournament. Uh, they'll be in the tournament, but uh, Georgia not having necessarily the, the, the end of the year run that we expected. South Carolina will play Florida this evening. That'll be interesting. I think Florida wins that game handily. Of course, these are all single elimination games too. Uh, Ole Miss will play Vanderbilt. Vandy, the home team here. That will be your early evening game. Should get started somewhere around 4.30 or so. But, of course, weather in the area could possibly delay that. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is this, is uh, for one of these teams, they're going to feel a whole lot better about NCAA selection committee stuff. Uh, Ole Miss needs to win this game. I think Ole Miss, again, the RPIs were around 36-37. Ole Miss should be in. I mean, let's just be fair, but they should be. Vanderbilt should be in. But if Vandy wins, and Vandy obviously has a great RPI, Ole Miss's RPI doesn't tumble too much, but it's pretty – you know, we usually get eight teams in a tournament. Ole Miss is the nine seed in the tournament. You lose to number eight, I think it really puts Ole Miss maybe on the bubble. But I think they deserve to be in. Maybe I'm wrong. And then Kentucky will play Auburn. That's interesting, too. And Nick Mangione and those guys got in the game last year and had a chance to play their way into a tournament. They can have had a better year this year, but uh, maybe not the year that they had hoped to have had. But uh, they have been better. And, of course, they win two out of three against Tennessee, and that always makes a big deal with your alumni. So let's look at uh, tomorrow. Uh, you know, a lot of these teams, of course, are waiting, you know, to see, um, you know, what's left, you know. And your top four teams, obviously, uh, you know, uh, Tennessee, Arkansas, you know, A&M. Um, they're all kind of waiting for their their uh, their weekend, you know. that's you know, They're trying to get their guys settled to go. But uh, so the winner of the Alabama-Georgia game – We'll have the morning game tomorrow against Arkansas. The winner of the South Carolina-Florida game will get A&M. Then the winner of the Ole Miss-Vanderbilt game will get Tennessee. Congratulations. The winner of the Kentucky-Auburn game gets LSU. So, interesting. Three teams from the West in the top four. You know, Tennessee beat everybody up over there. They beat up some of our teams, too. But – 
What's interesting is you look at how the bracket flows. A&M and Arkansas will meet again. They're on the opposite side of the bracket of Tennessee. So these teams that need some room to breathe, you know, won't have to deal with the monster that has become Tennessee. If you're Ole Miss or Vanderbilt, and again, you start thinking, okay, if I win this game, that helps me. Then you get Tennessee, and the next thing you know, you're in a loser's bracket. You know, so you could go – it almost would be better to go 0-1 than to go 1-2 if you're one of those bubble teams because Tennessee will likely beat whoever they play. This is a team clearly built on a mission. But uh, I love this time of year. I hate that we're not playing. I absolutely hate it. But it is what it is. There was some good news yesterday, too, for Mississippi State. Mississippi State picks up a verbal commitment. We've talked about this for some time. It's not a big surprise, obviously. But uh, Seth Davis, running back out of Katy, Texas. And Katy, Texas is a powerhouse. Uh, So let's run through kind of what's been going on with him. About 20 offers or so. He's got head Duke. He's a previous commitment to Duke. He backed out of that shortly after taking the follow-up visit to Mississippi State. Had offers from Cal, Colorado State, Florida, Kansas, Louisville, Maryland, Missouri, Morgan State, Ole Miss, Purdue, San Diego State, SMU, Tulane, Tulsa, Utah, Vanderbilt, and others. And uh, a very, very good student. Family really prioritizes academics. One of the reasons that he committed to Duke uh, in the first place. But um, I wanted to share some information with you guys about him. He is not a big guy, and that is probably my concern in some respects, is that size-wise he's not very big, and then the growth potential is not very big either. He's uh, 5'7", 170 pounds. Now, you can put a little weight on him, but, uh, you know, 5'7", is 5'7", and he is an explosive player, though. This is a guy out in space, and I don't think that he is like a primary running back guy. I think that he's a guy that – They'll move him around a little bit. What worries me about a guy like that is what do you do? What do you do on third and long and you have to back in there and he's got to step up in a blitz pickup and take on a Mike linebacker and your guy's 5'7". I mean, it's not magic, it's math, right? That's my concern. So how they utilize him will be awfully important. But let me read you the scouting report from our friends uh, Gabe Brooks uh, from 247 Sports. And uh, Gabe recently wrote this, and uh, this is available on, uh, on Seth Davis's uh, Seth Davis's profile on 247. Undersized scat back type who's proven high-volume capability for perennial Texas powerhouse. Uh, runs harder and stronger than verified size. 5'7", 169 in spring of 2022. I think he was listed at 5'9", about a month ago. And then he went to some event, uh, and they realized he's not quite as big as listed. Dynamic in the hole with excellent first move juice. Slippery and elusive and, related, and relative strength. Great at running low and shrinking his targets. Shows very good downhill burst and explodes off cuts. Does not gear down much at all when redirecting. More of a slasher than size would suggest, but also can string a couple of moves together at the second level. Uh, top end speed is good by evidence by big playability against Texas 6A competition. Multi-sport participation adds valuable context. Several 100-meter times in the 11.2 range when ran one sub-11 that was win-aided may actually play faster than track times indicate. Outstanding production and counting stats and per carry rate with 9.6 across 438 rushes in 2020 and 2021. 
Lack of size and frame length put a cap on physical and developmental upside. Hails from a more traditional run-oriented scheme with the lack of desired pass-catching opportunities. Willing participant in blitz pickup, but diminutive build could become a liability versus Power 5 competition. No scenario is exactly what I said. One of the most fun prospects to watch in the Texas 2023 recruiting class, no dime production, and the eye test. Despite physical stature, certainly has a place in today's game and plays the type of functional athleticism to foster game plan creativity. That's an awfully interesting word salad there. Uh, so basically what you have here is you've got a guy that has exploded in the highest classification of football in the state of Texas. And you watch his film, he will excite you. How does that translate to the next level? And again, I think it, a lot of it's going to depend on how you want to utilize him. You know, we don't run the football the way other schools do. You know, we swing it out there. And this is a guy that is very good in space. So I believe he could be a real weapon. Are there some issues? Absolutely. You know, in the jungle in which we run, there are some wild animals out there that will absolutely kill you. And so you've got to be able to match size for size. So he doesn't really have the ability in that respect. But this is a guy that can make you look really silly. This is a guy that has really good speed. You know, is he an elite track guy? No, he's not. But he's a really good track guy in a high classification in a football crazy state. Uh, I really like his game. but if, And if I was taking one running back in the class, I might not take him. Because, you know, what's going to happen with DJ and, and, and Woody after this year? I think DJ will be back. I mean, what if Woody declares pro? I mean, you know what I'm saying? And so – Probably a two-back class for State. You know, Dakota Jordan's a guy, too, that we've talked about for a long time. A lot of discussion now that he's going to be a baseball-only guy. And then I'm, I'm hearing privately that he's a guy, too, that will likely sign a pro contract. And so it appears that Mississippi State has already begun to make the adjustment with their recruiting priorities. And so now you think, okay, let's go take two backs in the class. And so you kind of get the complimentary guy. You go get this guy, a speedster, a little bit smaller, excellent in space, and then maybe go get your guy like another Dylan Johnson type. So we'll see how things progress there. But, uh, again, I think we take our time with this. This is a good commitment for Mississippi State. I don't think this is like a program-defining moment. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like you know, when you get Dak Prescott, even though many of you had never seen him, we had seen him. And we were thinking, you know what, this is a guy, man. This is, there's a special quality about this guy. And then you all saw it really, really, I think, for the first time as a healthy guy and a confident guy and the Liberty Bowl back in 2013, you, you really saw what Dak could do when healthy. And it really excited everybody for the 2014 season. So I don't say it's that kind of deal. I do think, you know, when I, I would probably, maybe, maybe, maybe Perk, maybe he reminds me a little bit of Perkins. You know, a guy that can really run. And I know, you know, Perk was a guy that was a little more yoked up and a little bit bigger. But how many times did you see Perk we utilize him in the passing game that he would make the first guy miss. You know, you worry a little bit about durability when you've got a guy this size. And so he's going to have to really commit himself to the weight room because again, he's going to have some certified assassins out there hitting him in his ribs over and over and over again. So durability is a big of a bit of, bit of an issue. And how does he handle blitz pickups? Those are the things that I look at that, that that's again, my concern. But the flip side of it is, is you get this guy in the open field there are not a lot of people that are going to catch him. And he has enough wiggle, too, that he can turn a first down play into a chunk down play. And so you, you may dip, swing it out there to him, and next thing you know, he could 
maybe get across the chains, but he is a guy, once he gets loose in the secondary, has enough wiggle to really make guys look silly. And so I like the get. This is not a big surprise. We've been expecting this for some time now. Basically, ever since he decommitted from Duke, we've expected him to be a Bulldog, and uh, he decided to do it to, uh, last night. That was kind of the plan he announced, his decision date. Uh, so now your Mississippi State class, four members. Four members in the class, and uh, that is fine with me. And I want to spend a little bit of time kind of talking about in-state recruiting here. We're going to have a ton of guys on campus next month that are either going to camp way, camp their way into this class or out of it. Uh, and I suspect you're going to see more of these guys camp their way in. I like the class in-state. It's not an elite class, but it's a really good Mississippi State class. And what I mean by that is, is there are a lot of guys that we're going to be able to get that we can develop that maybe aren't getting Alabama attention or LSU attention, you know, like we saw a few years ago. Uh, I think that's an important aspect of this. This is a good year for state because basically Ole Miss has abandoned the state. They're not recruiting many guys within the state. And I think it's interesting, too, is the, uh, you know, their one big in-state commitment, Suntering Perkins out at Raleigh. Ole Miss didn't even attend the spring game. I mean, I don't understand that at all. So I think state can do really well in state. Will the class be ranked high as a result of that? No. It's going to be a bunch of mid-level to high-level three-star type kids in Mississippi. And of course, State's got to get Joseph Head uh, you know, committed and uh, Malik Ellis. Those guys are no doubters to me. But this is going to be an interesting class. And I, and I, I want to go back to, and I could probably dedicate a whole show to this, but I'm going to just do a few minutes to this. But I, I want to go back because there were so many people that um, I said – that we were going to have a very overrated in-state class a few years ago. And I was told that I was crazy, and, and maybe I am. Maybe I am. But I want to go back and look at this together. And I'm looking, and I'm com- we're coming in fresh. I mean, I'm, I'm not – I in no way have I prepared this. It's just one of those things that I, it's been on my mind, and let's just kind of look together. Maybe at some point we'll dedicate more time to this topic – on future shows, but, um, you know, I felt like the class of 2019 in Mississippi was exceptionally overrated, exceptionally. I had some other evaluators in the industry tell me I was wrong. So let's go look back now real quickly at this, uh, you know, let's look, you know, maybe we'll go, uh, you know, top 15 or so. Maybe. Maybe we'll go a little longer than that. Okay, so quickly here. So, um, number 20 in Mississippi that year was Zach Edwards from Starville High School. I like Zach. Zach signed uh, with Louisville. You haven't heard a lot about him. You haven't. Uh, Jamon Gordon uh, out of Meridian. This is a guy, too, that um, a lot of people are really hyping him up, you know, early in his career. Really thought he was going to be a dude. Uh, ends up going to East Mississippi Community College. Um, now enrolled at Ole Miss. You know, so we'll see. You know, see what happens. But um, you know, a guy that hadn't done a whole lot. I, I would venture to say at this point, probably has not lived up to his potential. I think that is probably you know a fair assessment. But he gets the benefit of the COVID year, so. Um, you know, looking at last year's numbers, he had 13 total tackles last year for Ole Miss, 13. 
played in a handful of games. So, again, I, I would venture to say that so far he has not lived up to his potential. Um, uh, DeAndre Prince, you remember that he left Ole Miss, he went back. And this is a kid, too. I, I like him. Uh, and I really hope Mississippi State could get him. Of course, they had the deal where you know, he went to junior college and then had to go back to Ole Miss unless he wanted to uh, to complete his associate's degree. So he goes back. Kids played pretty well. Number 17 that year, Brandon Cunningham, former Mississippi State offensive lineman. Didn't last. Didn't make it. Uh, Radar Jones, number 16. You remember all the craziness? You know, everybody thought he was going to flip to Ole Miss late. He didn't. He goes to LSU. Um and again, has been a part of some cool teams, but he hadn't done a whole lot. You know, that's the thing I, I kind of think about with all this. You know, it's like you know, he's supposed to be, you know, a playmaker. And I know he had to make the jump. You know, he's a guy that's kind of getting by on athleticism. But, uh, you know, Radar is a guy a lot of people thought would be in the portal by now. He appeared in three games in 2020, uh, didn't do anything. Um, you know, looking at, he had three tackles in 2021. No, excuse me. He had zero tackles. He played in three games. And then last year, played in nine games and had nine tackles. So, in three seasons, nine career tackles. So, again, still some time for him, but it hadn't really worked out. John Rice Plumley, of course, had that fantastic uh, season in Rich Rod's offense, and now he's at Central Florida. It'll be interesting to see how they use him. They tried to make him, uh, you know, a receiver. And clearly made the right decision go with Matt Corral. Uh, K.J. Jefferson, I loved his game back then. I thought he was more of a Dan Mullen quarterback than a Joe Moore head quarterback. He's now a starter in the SEC. Kind of clearly proven that he was underrated out of high school. Jerry and Jones, uh, you remember him and all the craziness that went on with the uh, Ole Miss tampering situation with him. And then he ends up at Florida State and has basically kind of been a reserve there. At Florida State, a lot of people thought that he may eventually transfer from there too. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't like how it all went down, but uh, I think Jerry and Jones, at his heart, is like a very good guy. I think he was maybe manipulated in some respects by some people, but um, you know, you know, looking back at last year's numbers too, he's a redshirt junior. He uh, so he appeared in all twelve games last year, had six starts and twenty-two tackles for the year. So. You know, basically being a solid reserve for them. Um, you know, he, what's interesting, too, is uh, he appeared in 11 Bulldog games in, in uh, his first year here and uh, has, has basically kind of maintained that same level trajectory. It's just, you know, production had not been – had been great. Uh, Jonathan Mingo, I mean, you remember all the craziness that went along with him. Everybody's absolutely had to have him. And this is another guy, too, that – you know, great young man, but production-wise has not maybe been what many people expected. He had a good year last year, though. So maybe this year will be kind of his breakout season. But um, a lot of people considered him to be a guy that was just going to absolutely kind of be the next A.J. Brown. And to be fair, that was not fair to him. Absolutely not fair to him. I don't think there's any question about it. But um, um, started as a freshman – didn't do a, a whole lot, but, uh, you know, found some level of production. But, uh, you know, you begin to look at the numbers here. He had uh, 12 catches as a freshman, 27. And then last year he, he was banged up a little bit and only played in six games, 22. So uh, 61 career catches. Maybe not the production level many expected, but um, 
could have a big year this year. They needed, they needed him to, for sure. Uh, DeMonte Russell, this is another guy, too. Of course, he had the wreck at Mississippi State. Really just kind of coming into his own here. You know, we'll see what happens there, but that's another guy, too, that we were really excited about. Hadn't really taken the jump. This needs to be the year. I don't think there's any question about it. Uh, Dennis Jackson, you remember that? Former Mississippi State commitment. Flipped all Miss. The whole thing was very contrived from the beginning. Um, but, you know, he's another guy, too, that um, everybody's absolutely had to have, and there was all this turmoil and excitement about, uh, you know, what he was going to do, and he was going to be the next big thing. And, you know, he just, again, hadn't done much. You know, it's um, played in 10 games last year, started one. You know, and that was when they had some guys banged up and injured. But, you know, you, you get through all these other stuff and you start looking at the production numbers, and it's just not there. Looking at the receiving numbers last year, Dennis Jackson, 12 catches, 244 yards, uh, two touchdowns. And, uh, you know, you get into SEC play, you know, the numbers really, really drop off. He, he had a really big game against Liberty, you know, six catches, 126 yards, and a touchdown. But when you start doing the math, half of his season's production came in a game against Liberty. So, again, still some time, but it hadn't happened yet. Derek Hall, I liked him a lot. I just thought he was a bit of a tweener, and Derek's had a good career there at Auburn. I know he is a fan favorite, and they absolutely love him. Wish he'd have been at Mississippi State. Uh, Brandon Turnage, he was another guy everybody has absolutely had to have. Goes over to Alabama. And then uh, – you know, it just didn't work out. You know, that's as simple as you can put it. You know, it's just one of those guys that uh, was a tremendous athlete in high school, and you really felt like this is a guy that's about to really kind of turn it on. And maybe he will. You know, maybe he will. But, uh, you know, had uh, a good year, I guess, at Tennessee last year. So we'll see what happens now. But um, played nine games last year with one start. You know, just – he was a guy, too, if you remember. A lot of people said, oh, he's going to end up going to transfer an Ole Miss. He didn't. Uh, Jaron Handy, a guy that, that everybody was so excited about, just hasn't done much at all. And that was the year, too, we thought we had so many great defensive linemen. You know, just thought that, hey, this is, this is going to work out and we'll all be able to, to meet our needs here. But um, so uh, just recently, Jaron Handy was dismissed from the – uh, football program at Indiana, you know, was at Auburn, left, transfers to Indiana, and has now been dismissed from the team. Byron Young had a good career at Alabama so far. <clears throat> he really has. That's a guy, too, that uh, is an absolute monster. Probably this may be the breakout year for him, but a guy that I think has lived up to his billing. <clears throat> Nathan Pickering has been banged up a lot, but I think let's be fair about this, too. Nathan was ranked five in the country, was but Under Armour All-American. It, it, we're still waiting for him to fully realize his potential. It's another guy, too, that kind of struggled at the beginning of the year last year, had the big play at A&M. It's there within him, but uh, I think when you look back at our defensive class that year for the defensive lineman, it just hadn't been what we'd hoped. Uh, Charles Moore, I told everybody, nobody would listen, that Charles Moore – uh, was a little bit overrated. I didn't think he fit. I didn't think that was a true position for him. I wanted it to work out for him. Um, 
but it just hadn't. You know, it just hadn't worked out for him. Um, with signs with Auburn, and now he's at Marshall. You know, it's like he's moved around so much here. Um, committed to Mississippi State, and there was all this talk about him going to Ole Miss. He signs with Auburn, leaves there, then goes to Oregon State. You know, it's just like the the the. The track for him has been awfully interesting. So now he's a marshal, supposedly. We'll see how things progress with him. But, uh, you know, I just – I don't know. I don't know at this point what to expect. But I do know this. I do know that Charles Moore uh, was ranked in the top five in Mississippi and has not lived up to that billing. Number three, Jerry Ganeley. Uh, I, I was against this when it happened. When they promoted him to a five-star, I told everybody that would listen that this kid is not a five-star. I think he is a great player. He is not a five-star player. I don't know who won that argument. I lost it. But in hindsight, it looks like I won. Jerry Neely, a lot of people thought he may go pro in baseball at a high school. He didn't. There was all this talk about, well, you know, he's going to do this, going to do that. And he's going to be, you know, first-round draft pick or whatever in football. And he goes undrafted. You know, those are the things you begin to think about, too. Is like we get so excited about all these guys sometimes, and then you don't realize that it's so difficult. It's so difficult to project future human performance. It just is. You, you never really know. It's like everybody thinks they know, and it doesn't work out the way that people suspect. You know, and that's like, I go, let's go back and look here. Uh, the 2001 year for Jerry and Ely, 133 attempts, 768 uh, yards, and ran for five touchdowns. Not exactly huge numbers. Career rushing statistics, he played in 33 games and, and ran for a combined 2,235. Probably should have come back as a senior. His career high was last year, 768 yards. He averaged 64 yards a game last year. So, you know, the number's just not there to match the projection. And, again, I'll, I said it then, I'll say it now. He should have never been a five-star. Never. That was about propping up rankings. I, I disagree with it then around the industry. And I'll look back now and say, you know what? He's a UFA for football. Wish him the best, but uh, we were right about that. Now, the top two players that year were Charles Cross – First rounder by the Seattle Seahawks, and then Nicobe Dean. And, and this Nicobe Dean had an amazing college career, and his draft position not truly indicative of his uh, ability. Of course, he's a little bit banged up. But again, we could probably spend a lot of time and talk about this. But you know, again, you go back and you look. Okay, the headliners, Nicobe and Charles, lived up to their potential. But then when you get around, you know, the the, the rest of that top ten, outside of Byron Young, who could you say? You know what? Hey. This guy has really been what we expected him to be. You know, what's interesting, too, is you go back, you get a little, you know, deeper into this class, and you begin to realize, too, there's Snoop Connor there at number 30. And what a great evaluation by the staff at Old Miss at the time. Snoop Connor runs angry, does a great job, and now, uh, now in the National Football Leagues. So we had him rated 30th that year. And there he is in the big leagues now, right? So great job. Great job by him. But uh, this was a really deep class where you had a lot of guys out there, a lot of names that we knew just didn't pan out. 
and I said it then, and I'll continue to say it, that what happens when you have guys that don't routinely cover the state of Mississippi, evaluating guys, there's going to be a lot of ebb and flow in the rankings. It just is. You know, it's like you don't – how do you truly know the value of competition? Like, say for an example, if – so when Jeffrey Simmons had that huge game against Starkville High School that they won over in Knoxville at Macon, it was a big win because you knew what Starkville had. It's like they got A.J. Brown. You know, they've got a state championship caliber team, and Jeff Simmons and Knoxville just beat them. And so it's like, oh, well, he'd get 20 tackles. Well, you, then automatically people will just assume, well, he had 20 tackles, but how good could the competition be, right? Not to mention, I mean, think about like West Point. Like when I see somebody puts up a bunch of tackles against West Point, it impresses me because they run their system so well. So I look back that year and I said it in, in, ahead of time that we were going to have an extremely overrated class in the state of Mississippi. We do. We did. Still some returns. They were waiting for, but you know, by and large, you look at this thing three years in, and some of the guys that were highly touted, you know, this is a class two. I mean, I'm all the way down, what, 16 four-stars that year? 16 four or five stars? We had three five-stars in Mississippi. Crazy look back in hindsight. Hey, let's get out of here, guys, and I'll be back tomorrow because I love you and uh, – I think it's important we kind of recap where we are and kind of where we stand. We'll talk about some other things tomorrow. I kind of rambled on about that class. I was kind of intrigued myself. But uh, we'll get together tomorrow. If you hadn't done so, go to dogpilethebook.com. Order a book. Father's Day is going to be here before you know it. I've had a lot of people reach out and say, Steve, I went back and read the book, and I'm very appreciative for that. And I want to say, too, it's so interesting, too. I have somebody say, hey, I read both of your books. Well, I've written five, so maybe I need to work harder or get a publicist. But I've written five books. Flim Flam was the first one, then Stark Villains. That's the first in what will be eventually be a trilogy about Mississippi State athletics history, right? You didn't, oh, you didn't know? Yeah, it was a plan all along. So Stark Villains was book number two, and then Alpha Dogs was my quarantine project. That is book two in a planned trilogy about the history of Mississippi State athletics. So there will be a third book uh, probably in the next year or two. And then, of course, I wrote uh, Bloomsville Leander, which is my book of poetry. Still getting people contacting me about that. Very interesting. As a matter of fact, I even had a, a songwriter from Nashville that's wanting to uh, make a demo out of one of those poems, make a song out of it. So we've given permission to do that. We'll see what happens. How cool would that be? Hardy, hit me up, brother. And then finally, Dogpile, of course, which uh, you know will eventually surpass Flim Flam as the best-selling book in my catalog. And then I'm taking this year off, even though I'm going to work on some things for publication, maybe next year or the next year. I've got some things related to Mississippi State baseball that I'll write for Gene's page, but also to kind of working towards a bigger project. But I've always got something I'm working on. But uh, if you haven't completed your collection, you need to do that. Go to dogpilethebook.com, and you can get all the sports books there. Get them personalized and signed. And, of course, Blooms of Oleander available through Amazon, booksamillion.com, Barnes & Noble. Stark Villains gear always available through starkvillains.com. And uh, you guys need some new T-shirts anyway, so go get one of those. That's it for today, man. Until next time, let's all live our lives in a way we'll make more friends than enemies and people can see a difference in the way we live. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, 
ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.